Welcome to the Raising Biotech podcast. I'm your host, Sirani Fernando, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast has a mission of exploring biotechs raising impressive funds to develop ambitious medical breakthroughs. I speak with CEOs and founders to get origin stories, missions, and future visions for the company. And I also talk with relevant medical and industry experts to get more context on the company's potential to really make a difference in healthcare. Today, I'm talking to Arialis for a biotech rendition of One Man's Trash is Another Man's Treasure. Arialis is a company founded by a group of venture capitalists backing the potential of one neuropsychiatry drug that Japanese pharmaceutical company Estellus no longer wanted. The drug treats a rare type of autoimmune encephalitis, and in September 2023, the company announced a $58 million seed financing to bring the drug back to life. The drug has shown dramatic signals in preclinical marmoset models, and while the primary indication is a small group of encephalitis patients, the company is also eyeing a much broader population suffering from autoimmune psychosis. In this episode, I'm speaking with CEO and co-founder Jay Lichter. He'll talk about how it all began, the company's plans to get into clinical trials and future business plans for the company. Also joining us to give us some context on the drug's potential is Marty Jepson, CEO of Pintion Therapeutics, and he's also chair of Arialis's clinical advisory board. And finally, returning to the podcast for a completely external perspective on the drug is Dr. Leon Henderson-McLennan, medical advisor and co-founder of consulting firm InThought. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So Jay, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Really good to have you here. Just to kick us off, are you able to explain how Ariella started and how the technology came about? I guess, you know, it's a pretty interesting story coming out of Estellas. Sure, sure. So, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a venture capitalist and I start companies and have been doing it for almost 40 years, 35 years. You know, our stakeholder brand of investing is, we call white space, novel technology, novel targets, novel platforms. We think those are areas where you can have the biggest leap of, of treatment improvement for patients. Jay's track record is actually very impressive, which is also one of the reasons why I wanted to dig into this company. He has a biochemistry PhD from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and in the early 90s was one of the first people to begin working on the Human Genome Project. He started Avalon BioVentures in 2006 and has invested in a number of successful biotechs that have either been acquired or gone public for hundreds of millions of dollars. Their biggest victory was the 2019 sale of synthetic biology company Synthorex to Sanofi for $2.5 billion. So um, I'd done some CNS deals, I've been involved with CNS deals and hadn't for a while and I was keeping an eye out for something in the CNS space that was novel and different and new. And there hasn't been a lot in the last 30 years that's really novel and different and new. I would just keep an eye out. And of course, I networked like we all do. And I had met the team at Estellas Venture several times over the years. Um, and when they decided to close down their CNS group, they wanted to sell off an asset, all the assets and discovery in CNS. And they shared this one with me and I found this particularly interesting. That asset is what's now known as ART5803. It's a one-arm antibody treatment for anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, or ANRE for short, a life-threatening neurological disease that causes severe psychosis. Her condition continues to regress. Manic behavior, paranoia. 
each of them is giving us a different diagnosis. One is saying bipolar, next one is saying schizophrenic, then they're saying psychotic. That was a clip from the trailer of Hollywood film Brain on Fire, based on the true story of Susan Cahalan, a reporter from the New York Post who presented with the disease in 2007. The only problem being that nobody knew what it was. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is a disease occurring when antibodies produced by the body's own immune system attack NMDA receptors in the brain. And these NMDA receptors are proteins that control electrical impulses in the brain. Their functions are critical for judgment, perception of reality, human interaction, the formation and retrieval of memory, and the control of unconscious activities like breathing and swallowing, also known as autonomic functions. It primarily affects young people, about a third of the patients are under 18, and it's a lot more common in young women. Susan's case was the index case for the disease, and 15 years later, there's a lot more awareness of its existence and diagnosis. But it's still a horrendous disease with subpar treatment options. Taking all of that into account, when Jay saw that Estellas had a drug candidate for this disease with an interesting mechanism of action and already had generated some pretty impressive preclinical data, he saw a compelling opportunity to get back into the CNS space. They basically just wanted to sell it. They wanted it gone and they didn't really want any residual rights or, or anything. So it's not even like a, a spin-out or something of, of Estellas. It's just a, a pure asset sale. So I was doing my diligence, you know, sort of getting toward the yes, and I was explaining that to them. And uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to meet a couple of VCs that were working on the project. What's interesting was that Estrellas had a site in San Diego, about two blocks away from our facility. And uh, the head of their CNS group, Mickey Matsumoto, was running that site. And when they divested their CNS program, they were going to get rid of that site. I was able to convince him and we closed this deal to leave Estellas and, and join us as our chief scientific officer. I went back to Estellas and said, yeah, I'm interested in talking to their VCs and it turned out. So in a small healthcare investor world, those venture capitalists turned out to be Ed Hurwitz from MPM Capital, who Jay knew and had worked with on two other successful deals in the past. And the other group was Catalyst Pacific, led by BT Slingsby, who Jay had met through mutual friends over the years, and they always thought they might eventually do a deal together. So fast forward, the three investor forces formed the company in December 2021 and finalized the purchase of the drug from Estellas in April 2022. They brought in Estellas's Miki Matsumoto as their chief scientific officer and scientific founder, and they financed the company with the top priority of repeating Estellas's impressive preclinical study in non-human primate marmosets. So there were two marmoset studies done. Estellas did it first, uh, before they sold the assets, so maybe four years ago, three, four years ago. And what they did, so what's been cloned are the human pathogenic antibodies, some of them. Uh, Estellas had the sequence of a human pathogenic antibody. It also had converted that into a molecule. So through an ICV, intracerebroventricular infusion, which is a constant infusion direct into the brain, Estellas put that molecule into the marmosets. And these marmosets got very sick very quickly, showing behavioral and neurological disorders within two weeks. Then Estellas took their drug, ART5803, and infused it back into the brain via the same direct brain infusion, 
and in two weeks, all the marmosets were pretty much back to normal function. So you had a, a CNS treatment that was exceptionally rapid uh, and exceptionally robust, and that's what got me excited. So we, once we closed the deal, we wanted to repeat that because we didn't think that ICB would be a viable product. So the team at Arialis went back to the marmosets, used the same methods to make them sick with the pathogenic antibody, but then instead of that direct brain infusion, they did an intraperitoneal injection, which is an injection into the abdomen. And we got great exposure, and after one week, the animals were better, and after two weeks, they were still better. So those are two different experiments done with different colonies of monkeys, a different protocol, different route of administration, different uh, handlers to assess behavior. I'd done almost four years apart, and the second experiment probably worked a little better than the first one. So that's for, for us in super exciting times. So after that successful result, Arialis came out of stealth mode, announcing the company and its $58 million seed financing in September 2023. To talk a little bit more about the drug candidate and its potential, I spoke to Marty Jepson, who is CEO of another neurology company, Pintion Therapeutics, and he's also Arialis's clinical advisory board chair. Marty was at Pfizer for 27 years and at one point was the head of neuroscience there. Now he virtually operates venture-backed new companies that have a neurology or psychiatry focus. My affiliation with Arialis is that I was involved with one of the investors in, in the opportunity analysis prior to the formation of the company. And uh, I very much liked the approach, recommended the investment. And I thought when I got the opportunity to consult more on a sort of an operational and strategic basis that I would take it. And, and I've, I've done that now for about 18 months. Marty said the big unmet need for this disease combined with a differentiated and advanced therapeutic approach was what really piqued his interest to work more closely with Arialis. We talked a little bit more about the disease itself and what makes it so burdensome. The disease can sort of start with a with an almost viral presentation, like a flu, but then pretty rapidly you move into what are usually at the outset some psychiatric symptoms, and, and they can look very much like schizophrenia, but also include, you know, sleep disturbances, anxiety, things of that nature. And uh, soon the disease generally transitions into more profound cognitive deficits, movement disorders, dysautonomia, so an autonomic nervous system difficulties which present cardiovascularly, seizures, and even coma. And the diagnosis is based generally on a combination of these clinical signs. So, so oftentimes patients will present initially, they have symptoms which could be, you know, found in other disorders, could be standalone symptoms, an anxiety disorder, let's say, or a sleep disorder. But with the progression to other systems and other symptoms being involved, it starts to present a clue that, that, that it's more than, than, a, than a simple psychiatric or isolated neurologic condition that's manifesting. Marty said the industry is getting better at diagnosing the condition, but it can take some time to go through that diagnostic tree. And current options to treat patients are monoclonal antibodies developed for other autoimmune neurological disorders. And while many patients do respond to these, Recovery can be slow, sometimes months or even years, and oftentimes patients relapse. Current options are also immunosuppressive, so there's an increased risk of developing other infections. 
Suffice to say, there's room for a more targeted approach. This is a treatment that's not based on broad immunosuppressive properties, and I think that's a big advantage to it. I also spoke with Dr. Leon Henderson-McLennan, medical internist and co-founder of consulting firm InThought Research. He was on the very first episode, and when I told him I was looking at Arialis, he was immediately curious, particularly because he's come face-to-face with this disease with patients back when nobody knew what it was. There's no question that autoimmune encephalitis um, is an area of great unmet need, um, including anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis or ANRE. So basically, when one thinks of these immune-mediated conditions in general, I think it's always important to understand how far down the road from high-dose corticosteroids or immunosuppressants the drug discovery process has taken us in the management of the condition under consideration. Um, So for ANRE, you know, we've not really come that far at all, right? You know, sure, you know, if you're refractory to steroids or IVIG or plasma exchange, you may get, you know, rituximab. But even that, it has to be said, you know, is woefully nonspecific, right? What we're talking about with this asset, ART5803, is a more specific approach, blocking the NMDA receptor and autoantibody action underlying the pathology that drives the symptoms, morbidity, and in certain cases, mortality is much more attractive than these nonspecific approaches. So looking at the preclinical data so far, granted it's still pretty early, both Marty and Leon appeared to be pretty impressed with early results both in the lab and then in two separate preclinical studies in the marmosets. Marty pointed out the drug's notably rapid therapeutic benefit. It's very rapid. It's very noticeable. It was noted by one KOL that we work with who viewed the videos of the study to be an effect you could essentially view from outer space, was the way she put it, which is hyperbole, but a very dramatic uh, compliment on the results of the study. So taken together, very strong evidence to suggest that the mechanism of action, you know, will intervene the effects of the autoantibodies and then demonstration of that same effect on the behaviors that model that of encephalitis and marmosets gives me a lot of belief that these studies and the effects seen in them will translate nicely to the clinical setting. Yeah, no, I thought the, you know, convergence of the promise of a specific monoclonal antibody designed to address an area of unequivocal unmet need, the assets having been through two companies' preclinical programs, and indeed, Arialis's um, impressive confirmatory data in marmosets is, you know, basically a foundation for a compelling story. Thinking about going into the clinic, Leon says that won't come without its challenges, as the CNS is always a tricky beast to demonstrate convincing efficacy. There are some specific challenges, and it's not the least of which is achieving, you know, reassuring CNS distribution kinetics. You know, transitioning from non-human primate models to humans is often the biggest initial challenge, especially for larger molecules. So if you have the appropriate distribution kinetics, um, then you want to look at at least the reproduction of the non-human primate pharmacodynamics. And eventually one would hope to begin to see at least a measure of influence on parameters of clinical encephalitis, right? Leon said that once the study is conducted in affected individuals, the company will need to convincingly modulate elements of psychosis in the trials, 
like having an effect on anxiety, hallucinations, motor function, autonomic dysfunction, or even the reduction in seizure frequency. You know, some aspect of the human condition that would have a measurable response, I think, would stand them in good stead, you know, transitioning uh, from first in man, you know, into, you know, phase 1B or, you know, phase 1-2. While CNS trials are often seen as very time-consuming, risky, and expensive, Leon and Marty both agreed that the potential trials for autoimmune encephalitis are likely to be much smaller and shorter, just because of the fact that the drug should be able to achieve an effect quite quickly. In the marmosets, it was two weeks, and while the time of response is often what differs from the preclinic to the clinic, Human trials most likely won't last several years or have to enroll hundreds of thousands of patients like in other CNS trials, think Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or ALS. Because the course of disease is often, you know, subacute, then the question becomes also patient selection. And I think in, in this situation, that's altogether possible. And recruiting patients with, with characteristics that suggest that early intervention will yield that also early response will be very important. Speaking to Jay, the company is planning to enter human testing in healthy volunteers in the second half of 2024, and then will enter an exploratory trial in around 30 to 40 encephalitis patients in the first half of 2025. The FDA has agreed that autoimmune encephalitis is an orphan disease, giving the company certain benefits with things like FDA communication and feedback. And Jay said that because there's such an unmet need for a severe disease like this, after their exploratory trial in encephalitis patients, Arialis is hoping to only need one combined phase 2-3 trial for an approval. So I asked Jay what he thought a registrational trial might look like. So we don't, obviously we haven't talked to FDA about what it's going to take to get approval. You know, we're just sort of guessing at this point. So I would imagine that a registration trial would be, you know, 50 to 100 patients. Um, which, you know, if if patients respond like marmosets, which is, you know, they're in a coma and then a week after you get the drug, they're, they're kind of running around back to normal. I mean, I think the news will get around the community and we'll get, we'll get patients. The trial designed for an autoimmune encephalitis study will have a small number of patients and you will see an effect, I believe, very rapidly with the mechanism that uh, ART5803 exerts. Although the patient population is relatively rare, they uh, almost universally seek treatment eventually, not always immediately, but eventually. And as a result, they're highly motivated to participate in, in clinical studies. So while an impressive early efficacy profile might lend itself to smaller and more manageable clinical trials, I was curious about the drug's current safety profile. You know, so I think the key is that an MDA receptor is not expressed outside of the brain. So you take an antibody fragment or an antibody, it won't bind target systemically. And, you know, antibodies are ex exquisitely selective. So you're not going to have any off-target near-neighbor effects. So, so the peripheral dosing should be relatively safe. The cells showed that the molecule isn't an agonist or an antagonist for the NMDA receptor. And so it just is a silent binder. And our expectation is that when it does get into the brain, it'll just be a silent binder and won't have an effect. So, you know, if this were a small molecule, I would be more concerned. If this were a molecule that targeted something that was both peripheral and central, I would be concerned. 
but the fact that we're central only, it's antibody, and it has no activity except binding, just blocking the pathogenic autoantibody from binding. We think from a safety standpoint, that's going to not be their biggest challenge. He said there'll likely be patients with infusion reactions, which is pretty standard with these intravenous injections. And those can be treated quite easily with things like Benadryl or Tylenol, and usually they get better with subsequent doses. So while safety isn't the primary concern for the company right now, you don't really know until you know. So that's what they'll assess in their upcoming healthy volunteer studies before it goes into the exploratory trial. So, so far, things seem pretty flowery for this drug candidate, but we can't forget that the CNS is like the black box of the human body. We don't completely understand all that's going on in there. Sometimes it's a lot of guesswork. And that can also be a scary place to invest. A lot of these unknowns have deterred many pharma companies from investing in CNS drugs, and that's probably well illustrated by Astellas selling off its CNS assets. So I asked Jay whether there was any apprehension going into this therapeutic area, even though he'd been looking for some time and finally settled on pursuing this one. When I was thinking about a CNS program, it had to be really, really different. And and it couldn't just be, you know, modulating receptor and hope in three months or six months, the patient is better. And so that's why these animal models where you see this really profound result in a short period of time makes this really interesting. But I think, you know, that's really the critical thing is that is that it doesn't scare me because of the profound result in the in the Marmoset. The speed and the depth of efficacy. And so we're gonna do a short trial and if it doesn't work, we were wrong. Now it's still pretty early to be talking about market opportunity and how this drug might be used in the clinic. But the company does have its eye on pursuing subgroups of patients suffering from other psychosis-related diseases. And that is actually quite a compelling market opportunity for the company. So autoimmune encephalitis oftentimes manifests itself with primarily psychiatric symptoms, sleep abnormalities, symptoms very much like that seen in schizophrenia with hallucinations, paranoia, etc. Positive symptoms of schizophrenia. And so this has led many to believe that that schizophrenia as a disease may in part be driven by the presence of patient-derived autoreceptor antibodies to NMDAR. And uh, other possibilities include certain forms of dementia as well, other psychotic disorders like schizoaffective disorder, some more rare conditions where, where psychosis is a hallmark symptom of the disease. Now, this, I think, is going to take a little bit more development than it will in encephalitis. So so to characterize the encephalitis field, virtually everyone who works in the field believes that the disease is downstream of the presence and the effect of patient-derived autoantibodies to the NMDAR receptor. And a reasonable number of schizophrenia patients also evidence these antibodies, but there's less consensus among experts as to how causative they are uh, to the disease. So Arialis will have to figure out how to identify schizophrenia patients that might also have autoantibodies to the NMDA receptor. And hopefully they may benefit from a drug like ART5803, especially if they've been resistant or refractory to more typical treatments like dopamine and serotonin targeting drugs. The thing that will be 
I think very, very dramatic about 5803, if it does work, is it'll be a very large medical advance because there has been really very little substantial evolution of treatment in the schizophrenia population for about 30 or 40 years. And the typical antipsychotics that were around 30 or 40 years ago are less selective and less safe, but fundamentally work in the same way as the more modern agents do. And so uh, I think this would be a, a dramatic step forward in the field, might be complementary to the performance of those agents. And I think it certainly will be uh, useful in patients that do have quantities and, and the presence of autoantibodies that affect uh, the functions of their brain and, and induce disease. So there are many, many opportunities. The challenge will be to instill a treatment paradigm where those patients can be identified efficiently and then demonstrate that ART 5803 alleviates those symptoms. Leon agreed that it's worth Arielis exploring the drug in other neuropsychiatric conditions like schizophrenia. I mean, the potential there is great because we're seeing that, you know, maybe on the order of three to five, some people even say 10% of these more common conditions, more common neuropsychiatric conditions have at its root at least a modicum of NMDA receptor um, disarray that could be addressed to, um, you know, effectively reduce disease burden. Uh, so I think um, that is... Uh, appropriate for the future. And when you can get a subset of a common chronic disease that can be addressed, you're also still going to preserve your ability to to make it a, a, into an orphan condition. We call it orphanizing uh, common chronic conditions, you know, and you see that sometimes in, in cardiology and whatnot. So this could preserve orphan pricing, all of the benefits that are accrued for developing orphan medicines, and also address a tremendous unmet need. Moving forward, Jay and I discussed how far the 58 million will take Arialis, and he said that would get them clinical data. But the company will assess its financing needs along the road. My biggest worry is unseen costs for the clinical trial. I mean, we have our plans and our budget, but, you, you know, you're, you're kind of a hostage to a clinical trial as a sponsor because, you know, once you've dosed, you know, 10 patients, now you understand the cost basis for the, the trial and some of your assumptions may not have been correct. You know, so instead of 58 million, it costs 70 million. And so you have to assume it's going to be more expensive than, you know, your most aggressive budget. And, you know, we're fortunate, you know, the investors around the table have, have deep pockets and we can, you know, we can fund overage, but that's probably... Well, my biggest concern is that will stay on the timeline. You know, efficacy, I think it's going to work. So further down the line, perhaps they'll need to reach into those deep pockets to keep the development engine running. But Jay and I spoke about how he sees the company's strategy moving forward and commercializing a drug like this. I think as long as we're in these orphan disorders, we would probably go to just to build a company around it because you don't need, you know, massive infrastructure on the commercial side. If we're in psychoses, and we also have some preliminary data that it could be more than just schizophrenia, it could be severe depression, bipolar, some epilepsy patients, maybe some dementia patients. If it grows in something like that, then obviously we'd have to partner. Those are really, really big indications that are somewhat complicated. So as the company focuses on the small and very targeted indication of ANRE, if it pursues other psychiatry indications, it would need to partner. So I did ask Jay where he saw the company 10 years down the line in terms of 
remaining as a standalone company with partnerships, could a public listing be on the card since he has experience there, or is there a preference for a straight-up company sale? And the mission is pretty clear. Oh, that we're out of business. Somebody bought us and we're out of business. That's the life in this business, right? The only real exits in biotech are when big pharma pays cash. And, you know, IPO is not, is not an exit, especially in this market. First of all, there are no IPOs in this market, but in general. So with that in mind, I did ask Jay what he would see as a meaningful and valuable inflection point for the company to generate the best value if it, say, did pursue a future acquisition down the road. Yeah, it's going to be efficacy in a psychosis patient. That'll be the number one greatest value. If we get proper concept in the psychosis patients uh, that don't have neurological symptoms, then I would imagine there'll be a, a, a great deal of interest on, from big pharma. You know, it's a very simple, focused mission and plan. We just get this molecule into patients as soon as possible and see if it works. So that's it for another episode of Raising Biotech a different type of biotech origin story, and it will be interesting to see how this slick VC team is able to take the baton from Big Pharma to finish the race of one promising drug. How they're able to navigate clinical trials will be interesting to watch, and we'll be keeping an eye out as they head into human testing. Thanks to my guests, Jay Lichter, Marty Jeffson, and Leon Henderson-McLennan for their time and valuable insight. And thanks to you for listening in. Once again, if you liked the episode, please share it around with those who you think might be interested and give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. But for now, I'm Sarani Fernando, and I'll see you next time on Raising Biotech.